Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, part of the reason when we sit down and do this pod that it takes so long for us to come up with what to talk about is that we don't frequently like to talk about what everybody else in the mainstream of baseball is talking about because those people are probably doing it better than us or at least doing it with more experience or at least doing it with you know a more intelligent analytical angle. But sometimes, every few and far between, we get a week, or in this case, a week and a half, pushing two weeks at this point, where baseball just dictates what we have to talk about. So we're just going to talk about all the stuff that all your other baseball shows are talking about, everyone. Alex, hello. It's been a while since we've spoken. Hello. It has been a while since we've spoken. We also have to talk about this stuff, I think, because no one quite knows how to talk about a lot of the things that have transpired over the last week. And so that gives us our in. There you go. We, too, oftentimes don't know how to talk about stuff. So here, here we are. We have so much to get to. We're recording on a Thursday evening nighttime for you you know i haven't had dinner i'm getting hungry so things might get weird on the podcast i got a gin and tonic in my hand so hey turn up that a boy um i just remembered when we we tried to guess what type of mixed drink mookie Betts liked (laughs) i said gin and gnt take her and tonic baby okay speaking of mookie Betts, we're going to talk about how the dodgers won a little old thing called the world series we're going to talk about our favorite person on earth rob manfred our second favorite person on earth, Tony LaRussa, and uh, many other things going on in the baseball world. But before we get to all of that wonderful stuff, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And of course, you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, this is our prime. The offseason is our prime, baby. I feel good. I feel better talking about baseball during the offseason than I do about the regular season. Is that revealing too much? Not at all. This is our sweet spot. The offseason for us is is like a 3-1 count. You know, like the pitcher's got a groove run down the middle. Should I keep the baseball metaphors going? Uh, well, if the it's off a 3 oh is count, like, then we can't swing. So 3-1. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. Now that checks the, out. The offseason is like literally any pitch to Randy Rosarena in the postseason. That's what it's like for us. So what should we talk about first? Should we talk about the the World Series that just ended? Yeah. Should we talk about the championship of the sport that we have a podcast about? That's a good idea. On our last episode, which was now almost two weeks ago, um, I mentioned that I was going to be out of town. And we weren't sure when we would come back to record next because we didn't want to drop an episode that was going to be outdated because like one of the two teams won the World Series that night. So we were in a little bit of a between a rock and a hard place. But I said on the podcast, if there was something akin to game five of the 2017 World Series, which was the only time we ever did like an immediate reaction pod where we just took the subway into the old into the city, into the studio, which is what we used to do, which was much better than recording through Zoom. Oh, well. Um, then we would gather and we would do a reaction pod. Well, it turns out game four on Saturday night 
was good enough that, for that. That was that game. That was that <laughs> game. And we still didn't do a podcast. So sorry to everybody that we're like a week late. But sometimes, you know, sometimes you're on vacation. Dudes be you know, on vacation. <laughs> I, I, this is good because everybody got wrapped up in the Dodgers winning the World Series or whatever. Yeah, we get it. You want to you wanna talk about Justin Turner getting COVID. We want to take you back to two games prior to that game and, uh, and talk about something you probably memory hold because I kind of did immediately following the end of game four in which the Rays walked it off in stunning fashion against a... I don't even know how to talk about... We had time to prepare for this podcast and I still don't know how to talk about the end of that game. It's been a week. I've never seen a World Series game end on a on a Little League error. You know, I'm a Mets fan, so I've seen a World Series game start on a Little League error, thanks to Anna Cespedes game one of the 2015 World Series. But yeah, I mean it's one of the it's one of the all-time best World Series games I've ever seen, one of the best of our lifetimes. It, it's right up there with, like I mentioned, 2017 game five. It's right up there with the weirdness of 2018, the super long game. I don't remember which game that was between the Red Sox and the Dodgers. That was like 19 innings or what, some shit. And it's up there, at least for me, with like the 2011 Rangers Cardinals, all these errors happening, the David Freeze game where he makes the error and then redeems himself while the, the Rangers make several errors in that series. Yeah, um, truly insane that we've memory hold that already but it's because we have so much to talk about so alex the dodgers won the world series i don't think that comes as a massive shock to either of us but what did come as a massive shock was mere minutes after the dodgers recorded the final out we got an interruption on the fox broadcast to let us know that justin turner had been subbed out of the baseball game because he tested positive for the coronavirus. You're going to take us through this night and the truly strange, profoundly bizarre experience of watching it unfold and being on Twitter and sitting at home on your couch, which is something that we've been doing for seven straight months. I want to take us through that. Before we go through that, I just want to say, first of all, pour one out for the Dodgers. That whole team is fucking incredible. Clayton Kershaw got what he deserved. Death to the, the playoff curse narrative. We fucking love to see that. Oh, I thought you were going to say death to small spending teams. And I was like, yeah, let's get after I, it. Right at the I, that too. Death to sabermetrics. <laughs> oh, boy. The, Dodge, <laughs> the Dodgers won. I know, one gin and tonic, right? Hits, hits you hard in quarantine. Uh, the Dodgers won in no small part due to the fact that they traded for arguably, I will not say definitively, but arguably the best player in baseball. Oh my God. Top two. Oh my God. Don't send this podcast to Mike Trout. <laughs> Do you think Mike Trout listens to pods? Do you think he's like a true crime guy? My favorite murder. <laughs> Honestly, he, he mm. If we're being honest, he he probably digs Joe Rogan, but we we don't no, we don't no, <laughs> no. Do they have podcasts about fishing? Yeah, or like weather. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to say the Dodgers are a stunning baseball team. And while we're not surprised by any of this, they were so much fun to watch this year. And like didn't come across as I don't know, villains per se, like 
just uniquely fun throughout the entire process. And credit to the Rays as well, who were similarly, you know, narratives about their payroll aside, similarly fun to watch. I mean, miss miss managerial moves by Kevin Cash aside, which once again is we've already put two big things aside. <laughs> I'm not willing to just leave those things aside, but we can talk about it. Uh, do you have do you have thoughts? You have thoughts on the uh, I want to go through the Blake night Snell? first because I, okay, I okay, do. Okay. I mean, I have thoughts on Blake Snell, but it's not going to be like, well, the well expected Woba said that they should have subbed him out. No, those are not my thoughts because that's not why people come here. All right. So the Dodgers win the World Series. That's where the night begins. That's Joe where Buck. things. Joe Buck. Where... Pretty good on the call. Pretty Joe good Buck, on the call. Pretty good on the Here's pretty okay. good for the whole World, world pretty, Series. Pretty darn good for the entire World Series. Joe Buck, who clearly like kind of kind of felt like he didn't have many fucks left to give, you know? Yeah, was kind of worn thin about everything that was going on and was not afraid to kind of rip teams a little bit for for not spending money yeah. or or any sort of I mean there was obviously the the hot mic audio of him at an NFL game just being like fuck the flyovers Joe Buck like quick turnaround for our guy in the last week how you know that this podcast has fully eaten its tail is that we've come around on Joe Buck, who was like mm-hmm. not enemy number one, but like enemy number seven a couple of right. years ago. I think that Joe Buck is a good guy, but was a bad hang for a long time. And now I think he's realizing that he should just be a good guy and allow himself to be a good hang on the broadcast. Like him dunking on the Red Sox fans and John Smoltz, trying to be like, well, you know, like they got Oxford Dugo <laughs> back and Joe Buck sides that stuff. <laughs> powering through was iconic. But I yes. mean, we just have too much to talk about to spend a long time talking about Joe Buck. Yeah, but you know, we, we gave him his due. Joe Buck, open invite. Uh, the Dodgers win the World Series. As you said, immediately afterwards, Kevin Burkhart comes through with some breaking news, which is apparently they do on post-season or on post-game broadcasts uh and says Kevin Burkhardt is the Walter Cronkite of 2020 <laughs> I was literally like what is he about to say like have we been attacked are we at war I genuinely thought like, like something had transpired in our country well the thing about like the modern media landscape, and I'm stealing this point from someone at the ringer. I don't know. I've done a lot of baseball podcasts. I think it's Zach Cram, but I'm sorry to whoever it is if it's not Zach Cram. But like we don't get updates from TV news anchors that we don't already know anymore. So we're much more comfortable, even if it sucks and even if it feels terrible all the time. We're much more comfortable reading breaking news on Twitter. We don't ever get like your news anchor interrupting your nightly programming. And the only time we ever think about stuff like that is serious stuff. Like you mentioned, like when we go back and watch old TV broadcasts of like fucking, I don't know. Well, honestly, I mean the last thing, the last time I remember that sort of thing happening was like 2011. I think when we, when we got the old, uh, old Osama, you remember that? Nah, dude, the rock broke that on Twitter. Like, 15 minutes before that, but, but sure. All right, you're right. Now. I know what you're talking about. The, the rock. That's Give the rock is due. Hat let's, tip. We should do the an hour long podcast on how the rock broke, broke that news. Once again, too much stuff to talk about. Don't leave that idea out there in the world. That's IP baby. Yeah. So true. Um, 
we get the news that Justin Turner has tested positive for COVID. That's why he was pulled in the eighth inning of the baseball game. And then they're just kind of like, we have no other, uh, no other details to this. So we're just going to send this back to the field for the, uh, the trophy presentation and the MVP presentation, just all the normal baseball things that happen after a championship. But the most 2020 piece of breaking news dropped in there. We don't get any more information, really, uh, in, the, in the coming minutes. Rob Manfred takes the microphone and is booed for like three straight minutes by the fans. Enough that he has to take a pause, stop himself. Rookie move on his part. You got to power through the booing. You need to power through, he dude. Needs to, I bet you Roger Goodell called him that night. Gary Bettman hopped on the conference call and they were like, <laughs> hey, man, you just got to listen. The fans, they're relentless, but if you leave them space, they're just going to boo louder and longer. You know, They don't get tired of booing. That's why they go there. Yeah, right? If you're going to give them room to boo, they're going to boo. That's what I always say. <laughs> uh, Mark Walter, owner of the Dodgers. Didn't proceeds, know he was the owner of the Dodgers. Didn't, didn't know. Didn't, didn't either. I, proceeds to read, I don't know, slam poetry. I don't really know how to characterize what he read. But it was minutes, which is, at that point, already minutes too long, of some essay that he had pre-written about the fate. I, enough to enrage the, the one and only Stephen A. Smith, who took to Twitter to, um, to direct, his, direct his rage. Follow me back on Twitter. I'll drop you the Zoom link, my friend. <laughs> Wait, before we move off, what is his name? The owner? Mark Walter. Walter. Mark Walter. Mm-hmm. We got to stop giving the trophy to the owner first. I we gotta know, stop. I know. We got to stop. Yeah. Like, I know that this is like self-parody to complain about the owner getting the first look, like the first spotlight. But man, what did he do? Who wants to see that? Who is that for? The owner gets everything else. He gets all the money. He gets to keep the trophy. He gets the franchise, you know, like he gets to keep the franchise. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Does he also did, did, need to be the first person on the TV broadcast? Like, come on. Did Mark Walter go out and throw like six shutout innings? Did he hit a two-run homer? Like this, he is not the man who won this this piece of metal, as Rob Manfred. The players' union need it. the players' union needs to get something in the CBA about this. That's my take. Yeah, Escalate the, over this. If the owners want to have their due on the field, fine. Put them last. Absolutely. Let the fans like tune out or leave the stadium after this. You're absolutely right. Um, by this point, we're starting to, to learn via Twitter that, that Justin Turner, uh, the results came back in the, the second inning and were inconclusive. The test results from the day prior were inconclusive. We learned that in the middle of the baseball game that's being played now. Still don't really feel like I've been adequate, adequately explained to what inconclusive test means. No. But I was on FaceTime with my mom yesterday who used to work like in a lab as a tech. And when I said the first test came back inconclusive to her when she was like, what the hell was going on? And I was explaining it to her. She's like, oh, yeah, inconclusive. So I just kind of ran with it and assumed that like that's a thing. So yeah, exactly, exactly. You can cut that out of the podcast if you want. You know, you, you know, Bobby. They he, it was uh, it was inconclusive as uh, as we all know. Inconclusive tests up in here. Inconclusive is how I felt about a lot of answers that I put on tests in college, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> like my psych class, I was really struggling. <laughs> um, so at this point, everyone is freaking out, right? Because we are like, where in the protocols was it outlined that we were going to be receiving test results for players back in the middle of a baseball game? And again, this is something that I kind of feel like we never really got the answer to. Like it was explained and it feels like we maybe just kind of moved off it after that night. I haven't heard a lot of follow-up. If you have heard follow-up or if our listeners have heard follow-up, please let me know. But how do the protocols break down? The protocols that have been touted this entire baseball season, right? Yeah, by everybody and their fucking brother. Like, remember before the season even started when, like, all the national reporters were like, 47 pages of protocols, I read them all, and they're amazing. It's the best protocols that you could possibly imagine. The best protocols money can buy. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I I don't have a proper way to respond to, uh, to how that situation unfolded. Other well, than if you trust to say MLB's what? statement, it's that Justin Turner was like, fuck your little protocols and assaulted everybody on the way out of the dugout, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they would have needed like a taser to stop him. Oh, God, seriously. Yeah, so Rob Manfred takes the mic back again and at this point is slurring his words on air. Another thing that we never really got the answer to a truly, profan- about. a truly bizarre wrinkle to the night because it was like for a second there it was like is Rob Manfred okay like genuinely then, I was worried about the man's health like we were about to see something transpire on live television and then a lot of people theorized I think pretty credibly and I think that if it was something different than this we would have heard about it by now yeah. that Rob Manfred was hearing himself back in his ear monitor and there was a big echo in the stadium so he was hearing himself back on a delay it was making him very hard. It was making it very hard for him to cognitively process everything that he was hearing and also trying to say, which can cause people to slur their words. Many broadcasters said that this is a possibility. I can understand as someone who likes to have their audio piped back into their ears as they talk, how that would be um, slightly disorienting. Yeah. So I, I hope that that was that. Because if not, then this is a weird and very upsetting wrinkle to the night that I'm not prepared to talk about yeah. um, on a future podcast. <laughs> to cap things all off as you mentioned Justin Turner the one who mere minutes ago it was announced had tested positive for COVID-19 and that was the reason he was removed from the vicinity of all of the players and people on the field he returns to the field to uh to you know just hug and kiss his teammates his girlfriend pose at the trophy Take the team photo. Yeah, I mean, okay. To his credit, sometimes he's wearing a mask. Like, he's not never wearing a mask. Sometimes he is wearing masks. So, he, I mean, who's to say what happened there? Yeah, I think it's pretty, um, I think it's pretty cut and dry that this was an incredibly bad and selfish thing to do. But I think that we should literalize it and say it that this is one of the stupidest things that I've seen happen in slow motion like this in a in a very long time. Especially the fact that it's happening live on national television um, is just kind of a slap in the face to all of the viewers who have like had to adjust their lives, and then they're watching like these people who are supposed to be 
idols and um, who are supposed to be like the people that we hold up on pedestals, no matter what you think about how our culture does that. We treat athletes like they are, you know, beacons of the community. And everybody sitting at home watching this happen. And I think Jen Ramos wrote about this convincingly in Baseball Prospectus, but especially for those people watching at home who are disabled or chronically ill or who are part of the at-risk group for something like COVID-19, watching all of this happen and watching the way that the Dodgers and Justin Turner and MLB at large actively chose to just to flout any sort of logic or the, the hard written down protocols that we just joked about. Like it, it was upsetting. Like it was, it was unfortunate to watch. And I think that it actually took away from the experience of the Dodgers winning the world series for the first time in 32 years. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate because it was an incredible accomplishment and a really incredible baseball series. Like, I had a lot of fun watching it. And we talked a lot about, um, I, I mean, we have talked to no end about our misgivings of baseball even happening in 2020, right? And and yet, there were a lot of moments of joy throughout the whole season and throughout the postseason in particular. And so for things to end on this note felt fitting, but... I, that didn't make it, I think, any less uh, difficult to swallow. And and I will say, you know, you mentioned, you know, Justin Turner, as well as the Dodgers in MLB kind of playing a role in this, right? And Justin Turner, yes, made the decision to walk out onto the field knowing that he had COVID-19. And at the same time, this is very much the product of a system that was set up to enable this sort of thing, right? Like, yeah, I, they were playing baseball in the middle of a pandemic with fans, with fans in a state with surging cases in a wave of this where we're breaking records for most cases in a day still. Yeah, it's not like Major League Baseball was really being the model sports league of saying this is how we prevent the spread of COVID-19. They just no, weren't. I mean, we so already like, finished the, that. Like the NBA and the WNBA already did that. Yeah. Where they created an actual bubble. They didn't let anybody in and out of it. And if you broke protocol at all, you were kicked out. Like straight up. You can't do that. And MLB didn't create that environment. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, I think that this is what Albert Berneko wrote about this in Defector. But it was MLB's responsibility to create a better environment and a better system. And when systems fail, Yes, part of the onus is on Justin Turner and the person who committed the act that forced the system to fail in that single instance. But I think that we really should be interrogating the system in the first place. And especially with coronavirus, if everybody is not on the same page ahead of time, shit is going to go wrong in the moment. Like if you have not been preaching to your players all year long and saying no matter what like we have to take this seriously then when something like this comes up they they just might not take it seriously zach Plezak might not take it seriously mike clevenger might not take it seriously and if we haven't all had an active and fair discussion about how we're going to treat each other in this society on our team in the world of baseball or at work if we are if we still have to go to work or at the grocery store or whatever then 
we're going to infringe upon the other people's safety. And that's what Justin Turner did. He infringed on everybody in the Dodger and their Dodgers and their entire family's safety. Yeah. So, I mean, how, do, what is the period to this story? How does this end? I don't, I don't know. I, the Dodgers clearly aren't quarantining because they I'll tell flew you what back the to Los is. Angeles. Yeah, they got on a plane <laughs> and then flew back to Los Angeles. So, yeah. so, you know, we don't, I, I don't think we're going to learn what happens now. You know, I don't, I cannot imagine the Dodgers are going to volunteer any new COVID cases, you know, not, that they, um, not now that they don't have to. No, they don't have to. I mean, they never be, really be truly the had to, but like they would act, they would do it because it was it was very obvious to reporters. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, it's the kind of thing where we don't know. A lot of this remains obscured, right? Like Justin Turner interacted with clubhouse attendants or janitors or whoever. You know, like there are other people at the fringes of this conversation who will never learn about were impacted by this. That goes for literally the last three months of a baseball season. Um, yes. But, you know, like I said, it's a fitting way to end things and, uh, and a very fitting way to go into the most dreadful offseason in, uh, in recent memory. Yeah, we came so close to the biggest story of the night being a culture war over analytics and sabermetrics in baseball, right? And then, like, three storylines trumped that in the following 24 hours. It can never be, though. We sh- Let's talk about Blake Snell for a second, though. Please. While please, we're on the please. topic. Because it can never be just an isolated incident or an isolated decision. It always has to be, Kevin Cash did this, so I need to rail against the last 25 years of baseball analytics. Which is, like, the most uninformed and frankly, like negligent version of the conversation for the talking heads to be having, but they continued to have it even after the Justin Turner news. Like they were still talking about Blake Snell all night on all of the shows. And I assume in the next day of, you know, I don't like ESPN. I don't know. I don't have, <laughs> but it's so annoying. I, I find it personally annoying how people just pick and choose the fact that like, well, the Dodgers have made a lot of similar decisions, and the Dodgers also have one of the mo- most robust, like sabermetric um, wings of their franchise. And to say that, like this decision by Kevin Cash is "quote unquote" the death of sabermetrics, or you know, "quote unquote" like analytics run amok in baseball. Like, first of all, I'm not even clear on what analytics were informing Kevin Cash to bring in the guy who'd given up a run in six straight appearances, other than like the Rays may believe that adhering strictly to the guys that they acquired at the beginning of the season is the right thing to do. But I don't really think the Rays believe that. I just think that Kevin Cash was scared to deviate from that plan. Bobby, I don't know if you've heard this, but binders lead to blinders. (laughs) You manage with blinders on and you miss what's actually happening in real time. That's... I mean, you know who said that. I know who said that. The listener, our friend Alex Rodriguez, always has his finger on the pulse of the moment. Uh, the thing is, like the Kevin rank, Cash. Wait, uh, rank these binders quotes. Binders lead to blinders, or binders full of women. Which one is better? Which one is worse? <laughs> the exact thing that my mind went to. <laughs> I can't ever think of a binder without thinking of Mitt Romney. <laughs> Talk about guys who've covered themselves in glory in the last three weeks. Fucking Mitt Romney. You know, 
binders full of women sound a lot more interesting than binders full of analytics. I'm just going to say that and then we'll, we'll move on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what the, what the hell Kevin Cash was doing. Like it was a weird decision to pull Snell. And also this is what they have done all year to get to this right, moment. Exactly. So Snell like hasn't not more than six innings since 2019, like the beginning of 2019. Right. Exactly. Their whole thing is they have a stable full of guys who can throw 98. Right. So like, <laughs> yeah. Sure. So like, no, but, but like their strength is a bullpen, right? We knew this coming in, like you said, Snell hasn't, didn't pitch six full innings the, the whole year. So the move itself, you can say, yeah, Snell was cruising. Um, why'd you go to Nick Anderson? But like the, the Rays were probably always going to, to do this, no matter how much of a stink Blake Snell raised on the, on the way out, you know, of getting pulled. Um, going to Nick Anderson is the larger offense to exactly, me yeah. and taking Snell out because this is where I start to actually sympathize with the, you got to use your fucking eyes argument. Like no matter what the Rays large sample size peripherals are saying about Nick Anderson, that dude didn't have it for the last two weeks, whether he got tired Literally for or the whether entire he was, postseason, yeah. whether he was tipping or whether he's injured. So he didn't know exactly where the ball was going. It doesn't matter. He didn't have it. I know like little leaguers who could have identified that he was given up runs and he was given up hard contact. Like yes. that is obvious. So to go to Nick Anderson specifically. Yeah, that that's the wrong move. You, you, we can debate until we're blue in the face about whether taking Blake Snell out is the right move or not. Now, I've made my feelings clear about starting pitching and how you, you need it to win a World Series. Once again, shocking. You need good starters to win a World Series. You need to let them actually pitch. But I'm not even particularly interested in, in rehashing the same conversation that we've had about like the aesthetics of the game and whether it's better for the game that starters go deep and them being like the quote-unquote main character of the game. I still feel all of that stuff, but I don't think that necessarily has to apply to the Rays in this instance because that's not how they run their franchise, and that's fine. I just think holistically for the league, that would be better if most teams were not the type of team that would take Blake Snell out in that situation. But I still think that's true. Like You can't convince me that if you swap jerseys and managers that Dave Roberts is taking Blake Snell out there. He's not doing it. The only reason he came around on Clayton Kershaw is because Clayton Kershaw's older. His stuff is not as sharp as it used to be. And he's been burned quite literally like 25 times by not taking out Clayton Kershaw in that exact scenario. But if it's like Walker Bueller, he's not pulling him there. So even if you look on the other side of the diamond, I don't know why like bad faith hot take artists are trying to act like every single team in the league has been strangle held by analytics and they're all too scared to let Blake Snell pitch into the sixth inning. Like it's less than five years since we let Matt Harvey go out there for the ninth over a hundred pitches and blow it in an elimination game in the world series as well. So yeah. we're fine. It's fine. And, and also did you hear who the white Sox just hired? Like we're not in danger of the league tipping towards analytics and further. Segway <laughs> alert. Uh, actually, before we get to that, I want to ask you a question that really has nothing to do with anything we have just talked about. It's an it's a total aside and really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things at all. Yes, I will allow Alex Rodriguez to come on the podcast and defend his take that home runs are empty calories. And yes, I will agree with him, even though you protest vehemently. Yes, I mean I do think that sabermetrics should die, um, unironically. Okay, what's your question? Uh, 
My question is, what defines a drought? The oh. Dodgers, the Dodgers supposedly had had a World Series drought for 32 years. Which are you going to try to tell me that that's not a drought? It is a drought. I'm kind of just curious what the so there are 30 baseball teams. Okay. So is it like 30 years and above? Is 20 years a drought? Because I feel like oftentimes we're like, oh, this team hasn't been in the playoffs for, you know, five or six years, or they haven't won a World Series in, you know, 20 years. This is a drought. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the answer is, but I almost, but like, you know, I feel like like 20 years of not winning World Series isn't a drought. That's like mostly to be expected. Almost every baseball team is not going to win a World Series for 20 years. You know, the Dodgers are going to win three straight, or the Red Sox are going to win three straight, or the Yankees are going to win three straight. Like, that's how baseball goes, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a weirdly hot take, but I am curious your, your thought process on this, because I was mulling it over in Game yeah. 6. Yeah, this is why I love doing this pod with you. Thanks for yeah. asking. Of course, of course. The way that I see it is there are four ways for you to possibly talk about why your team hasn't won a title in the recent in recent memory. Number 1, drought. You, we've already talked about that. I think it's all very squishy, so I'm going to lay out the four options first and then we can talk okay. about it. Okay. Okay. Number 2, obviously, curse. Many curses have existed. We've talked about that in the past. <laughs> Number 3, you're just a bad franchise. Like you're just a poorly run franchise. You've never been good. I would say that this is like the the Rockies. They're bad. They've never right. won a title. And they've never yeah. even been particularly close. And number four is you're like a newer franchise. So who who are some of the newest franchises who have never who haven't really been a lo- around long enough to get a title? And those last two can kind of blend together. The newer franchises are usually worse because they have less money. Yeah. Well, like theory. like the Nationals up until last year, right? Like I wouldn't yeah. consider them have you know, they didn't have a World Series drought. They'd only been around, you know, they've been around yeah, no, less no than two like, Drought's over. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't even remember Joe Buck's Nationals call. It's, it's probably for the best. I don't it remember anything It was probably like under 30 seconds year. before Bryce Harper's name came out of somebody's mouth on the broadcast, but whatever. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, drought and curse are the ones I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. I would say a drought is when you are a franchise that expects to win and you've gone longer than your franchise your you've gone longer than your fans are willing to accept in the public discourse so like dodgers fans think that they should have won at least i would say if you put the over under like 3 times in the last 15 years if you stretch all the way back to 2008 which is when they became good it's when they started ripping off division titles and they're now at like 10 straight I think that's a drought. Like they, 1988 is a long time for mm-hmm. the the one of the most storied franchises. I would say the second most storied franchise in our league to go without winning a title. It's just weird. Yeah, and yeah, I would I, say the same thing about the Mets. I would say they're in a drought right now too because they play in the biggest market. They're at the center of the discourse in baseball. Their fans, myself included, are loud and annoying about how they should win more often. And they've made it to the World Series a few times and they've lost. So they're on like a drought. Yeah, I think the expectation point 
is a key one, right? Because when you have these high expectations and consistently don't meet, you know, you expect it to rain every summer. And when it doesn't, <laughs> you're like, shit, where's yeah. the rain? Yeah. So, um, like, the Yankees are in a drought, even though it's been less than 15 years since they won a title. This really? is a drought for the Yankees. Absolutely. This is a title uh, drought for the Yankees. Uh. But the Marlins, who haven't won since 2003, they're fucking scot-free. Their fans are like, we have two titles. Yeah, you're doing fine. And they lucked into the playoffs this year. Like, you're sitting real pretty right now. Even as the team gets gutted. I don't want to speak for Marlins fans, but... I don't think that I would accept Twins fans saying that they're on a World Series drought because they won in 1991. Like, that's less than 30 years. You're fine. Millennials remember the Twins title. The 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 Oakland A's, 31 years, baby, let's go. I would accept the Twins saying they're on a playoff win drought. (laughs) (laughs) They've lost 18 straight games. Yes. Now, a curse... That's a very specific circumstance. Mm-hmm. You have to be on a drought. So it's like a square rectangle situation. You have to be on a drought. And that drought has to have been caused by something weird. That is right. sort of like a folklore element. You know, there's right. the goat. There is, there is a there's single the curse of the Bambino. Uh, there's a bunch of curses. Yeah. We know about curses. When, when the Red Sox don't win for the next 30 years, it's going to be the curse of the mook. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I feel like we've. I feel like we're at the. We're on the same page here. You could like. You could really ballpark it for each team. Like, I think that the Royals were on a drought because it was like fifty years. You know, Mm -hmm. Cleveland is on a drought. They haven't won since nineteen forty-eight. Right. But like, if Cleveland had won in the last fifteen years, they'd be fine. They'd be. They'd be coasting. They would not be on a drought. Okay, I feel good. I feel good about this. I'm gonna have to go and and probably sleep on it. Okay. Um, maybe maybe this is an off-season project for us. You know, we might have to um, do a little scientific research into uh, into some recent droughts. Um, I hear that um, the pollsters are going to have some free time after November third, <laughs> so maybe we can run a Gallup poll or something. Pollsters known for being right. Uh, should we talk about everything but the World Series? Yes. Yes, we should, and we should start in Chicago. With Tony LaRusa. <sighs> when I say Tony LaRusa, what is the first thing you think? Just the first thing. Word association. Tony LaRusa. Go. Um, I don't know. Albert Pujols. So for me, it's like Cardinals fundamentals. And obviously, we can like dig a surface. We can dig through that surface level analysis. We can try to interrogate what that means there's a lot that goes into that but i think one of the primary things that goes into that is that there's like this old school way of thinking he's a baseball lifer and he's like a he's a manager's manager you know he's a guy that the managers look up to and respect yes and um I don't know about you, but I associate I associate that negatively that has a negative connotation I, for me yes yes <laughs> So what is happening? What is going on? Can you make any sense of this? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the White Sox made the playoffs this year. So I don't know what they were doing. I We don't even need to get into why they, quote-unquote, mutually parted ways with Rick Renteria. But this feels like a Managers massive... are famous for mutually agreeing to just not manage <laughs> baseball teams anymore. <laughs> Um, this feels like a stunning about face 
both in terms of on-field managerial experience and off-field managerial experience, right? Like Tony La Russa has not managed a baseball team in nearly a decade. So he's probably he's probably he missed a couple things. Yes, he did went on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But the game has changed a lot since then. Um managers don't manage with their gut as much anymore. You know, like he feel, feels like he was one of the I guess the the last wave of managers who just like, you know, they called the shots. They yeah. were the guys and the buck stopped with them. And that's not yeah. the case anymore, right? Like, like the power broker manager. Ex- exactly. Yes. Who could like get shit done. And who was like involved in like trades and you know, yeah. involved in lineup construction and involved in roster construction. And yeah, I, I and mean, for, obviously managers are involved in lineup construction. I mean, more like, yeah, from the from sole, like a top level. Yeah. The sole arbiter of the lineup. Right. And for better or worse, that's not the case anymore, right? Like the game has changed. I, I think that's largely for the better. A lot of managers just kind of weren't good. And it was the <laughs> oh, teams but it that were good. Talk radio, <laughs> so much content. Um, so he's behind the times in the on-field managerial portion. I think equally, if not more important is the off-field stuff, right? Like how will you manage a clubhouse? How you are able to interact with your guys? Tony Russa, not exactly known for being the most culturally progressive baseball manager and in fact, has spoken out quite a few times against a lot of the um, more outspoken players of uh, this generation. Namely yeah. guys like Fernando Tatis Jr., right? Who the White Sox have a lot of analogs to on their team, right? Like a lot of guys who similarly... Um, are not afraid to express their emotion on the field. And Larusa just like, I mean, flat out like doesn't like that shit. He's yeah. like, we don't, we don't need that. I think the thinking that he's had a lot of time to change his mind about that is naive for a few reasons. Number one, he literally came out against what Fernando Tatis Jr. did this year, swinging on the 3 0 thing, which, you know, we described as like the death of unwritten rules. And in his head, he's like, no, this is like a chance for me to reinforce the unwritten rules here. Um, and number two, have you heard this phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, Alex? I'd like to amend that for baseball. You can't teach an old dog who's already been inducted into the Hall of Fame for the job that you just hired him to do new tricks. Doesn't roll off the tongue as, as easily, but but I'll allow it. It's more accurate in this it's, ex- it's specific correct. example. <laughs> He's this not going to man... be different. We're not going to get a different Tony Larusa. Now we might get a sort of like coexistence. You know, put a little coexist bumper sticker on. We're not going to get him being like, "I loved what Tim Anderson did today when he threw <laughs> the bat twenty five feet towards the opposing dugout." That's just not going to happen. And yeah. I don't want to make I don't want to make too much light of this conversation because I actually think that there is sort of a more nefarious layer to this in that Jerry Reinsdorf, old old school, rich, white owner of the White Sox just replaced a Latin American manager, of which there are not enough, with an old white dude who's been managing since the 70s 
who managed for him in Chicago in the 1980s. And on that same day, Joel Sherman of the New York Post reported that a large part of the reason that La Russa was hired was because Reinsdorf regretted firing him in the 1980s. And I think there is a bigger aspect to this conversation than just what we're talking about with on the field, just what we're talking about with Tatis, Tim Anderson, um, Yohan Moncada, Luis Robert. Managers now need to, number one, effectively communicate with the front office and execute a strategy like Kevin Cash does, even if that strategy blows up in your face in Game 6 for the World Series. Like Dave Roberts says, they need to handle a clubhouse. And by that, I mean, don't rule with an iron fist because that's not what people respond to anymore, nor should it be. I, I Bobby, Mike Matheny had a lot of success as a manager. Actually. Everybody I don't liked know if him, you know that. what I heard. <laughs> I mean, the follow-up to Tony LaRusso really worked out. <laughs> that's the second thing. Number three, I think managers need to be like socially conscious and empathetic to the lived experiences of their players. I don't think that's optional anymore. Like it's incredible that that is even like a hot take even. Like I don't even think that is a hot take. But for like but 120 that, of like, the 130 a, years of baseball, that was a thing that was never even considered. Like you had managers who were just like straight up segregationists during the integration of baseball and who made it impossible for their players to feel welcome, safe, or like they had the opportunities to succeed for those clubs. Now, obviously, this is not that. But the second that Tony La Russa comes out and has a hard time understanding the validity of active protest on a baseball field, it's going to become a serious problem. And oh, that, that, you mean- that's going to be challenged right away. You mean the guy who questioned Colin Kaepernick's motivations? I, yeah, I, I will no- say that like uh, Bruce Maxwell came out today and said that they've talked and that Larusa fully understood what he meant and that Larusa was a great man for reaching out and wanting to talk to him about it and coming and changing his mind on it. So tolerance, I guess, Alex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always good when your new manager um, has to say. The second question into his introductory press conference that he quote doesn't have a racist bone in his body. That's always good. That like he had to get that out in the open. You know, I just want everyone to know that I have like a handful of black friends. Like the black community loves me and not racist. Promise you. 2020, very challenging um, year for people who are trying to avoid becoming ageist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, I, I legitimately worry. Like, I don't think this is going to become a whole thing where like a bunch of franchises are going to go out and hire old managers now, especially like if this blows up in the White Sox face, like this might be the, the last hurrah for that generation of manager trying to get back into the game. But I worry for, like, the enjoyment of the White Sox in the short term. I worry for White Sox fans who, like, just got to this point with this team. This core just got here, man. They've been waiting so long for this. They've traded away all of their good players for this. They traded away Chris Sale, and they got back all of these prospects for him. And finally, 
all of these dudes are up here at the same time and clicking. And Luis Robert is actually good, even if he's not better than Mike Trout. And you finally have found some pitchers and Lucas Giolito looks like a legitimate Cy Young candidate. And the first thing you do is hire the manager of the team that everybody hated. The last time we saw him, he was the manager of the Cardinals and everybody hated them for having no personality and for being baseball's villain. And that's just not the vibe of your team. It just feels like such an overcorrection in every aspect of it. And that's my take on the whole situation is that Jerry Reinsdorf overcorrected down the line, whether that be culturally speaking in the clubhouse, whether that be he didn't like seeing Dane Dunning get pulled in the first inning of a elimination game. Like no matter what it is, it feels like a complete and total overcorrection. Important to point out too, that like this was a him decision. This was straight up. Larusa was not the preferred pick for a lot of top, top executives. To the point where I should mention that when the White Sox tweeted out <laughs> the photo, they accidentally left AJ Hinch's, AJ Hinch's signature. And that's a sort of hard thing to describe auditorially. But I guess what I'll say is that the graphic that they used had like a picture of Larusa and his number and everything. And there was like a signature next to the number that you would very much very frequently see on like a poster or whatever on, on like a, like a baseball card. And the signature was AJ Hinch's signature, which might lead one to believe, which might lead one being me or two being you to believe that um, AJ Hinch was the guy <laughs> that Rick Hahn wanted to hire. So he had his social media staff draw up this graphic and then they forgot to switch out the, uh, the layer of the, the uh, Photoshop session. That was the signature. <laughs> yeah. AJ That's Hinch. Just speculation. Who is, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You had, once again, this is the first, I believe, first managerial hiring of the offseason. There may have been one or two during the postseason. I do not remember. No, that was it. I think this was the first one. So, like, you had your go at AJ Hinch, at Alex Cora, who, like, we can have we could talk for an hour about what their place is in baseball from here on out. But they're going to be coaching a team, so like yeah. it fucking might as well be yours, right? Well, I think AJ Hinch Alex is, Cora is going to be managing the Red Sox, so I don't think he was actually ever on the table. That's just my opinion, but that's that's fair. Yeah, I mean AJ Hinch is rumored to be the front runner for the Tigers now, right? Which like makes sense. You have a franchise that's kind of been in turmoil over the last few years, so why not bring in a guy who is like suited for this current moment in baseball it it's weird i mean i know like we've probably said this a million times but can we just hire someone who's like getting their first chance like that's not disqualifying there are plenty of people who understand analytics who can execute recon in the front office's vision who can garner the respect of a clubhouse who have just never been managers before and that would be quite all right if you hired those people Sorry, Jerry Renz, or if you don't already have his phone number in your, I don't know, Rolodex, since you probably use one of those still. But Dream Baker, Dream Baker. The, uh, let's, let's move on from this. But the last thing I want to say is that there's already been anonymous sourcing, anonymous reporting, leaking out that free agents don't want to go play there for Tony LaRussa, which is... 
I mean, that's always good. The wild. news broke I mean, today, it's like so maybe it's awesome slightly that... unfair. <laughs> like, if you're a free agent, <laughs> like you probably should still consider Chicago since like that team is really fun and managers get hired and fired all the time. But it's just not the vibe you want to create. It's a horrible foot to set off on for this acceleration of your rebuild. You're now in the contention stage, so it's just not. You need to be able to sign those free agents. You need to be able to add the Yasmani Grandal. Like that is he's a large part of the reason that that team is even in the playoffs last year. You can't just have a young core. We just saw it with the Dodgers versus the Rays. The Rays only had team controlled young guys and they lost. So you got to be a little closer to the Dodgers end of the spectrum. And it doesn't seem like the White Sox have given themselves the best opportunity to do that. Oh, it's bigger. It's bigger. Alex, so the offseason is off to a sour note already because of Tony LaRussa, because of Justin Turner, and also because owners are cheap. Owners be owners, sing. <laughs> They're not even trying to hide it. Um, so everything that we said during the season about the labor landscape and how this, if we thought last offseason was a hellscape to live through in terms of talking about the things that we talk about this offseason is going to be much worse um we've been proven right owners are already cutting players who are heading into their final years of their deal who have options um they're just not picking up the options relatively cheap options so we've seen i think the two biggest ones so far and we'll probably see more have been colton wong with the Cardinals, who is a big contributor to that team, and they made the playoffs this year, so not great. Um, they declined his $12.5 million option. And then <laughs> Cleveland, not picking up Brad Hand's $10 million option after he has been one of the best relievers in baseball for the last few years, and they've already slashed their payroll in the last few years, including trading away many guys who were their highest earners. Um, or who were about to hit arbitration. So, I turn it over to you, Alex. Is uh, is this offseason fucked? Are we fucked? What's going on? I think we're going to have a great time, personally. <laughs> I definitely don't think From we're going to get... point on, every owner is going to pick up all the options. I don't think we're going to get on here every single week and just scream about how fucked we all are. I definitely don't think that's going to happen. I think this is going to be tight. No, it's going to be good. I think it's a good sign that teams are literally coming out and saying the words, yeah, due to, you know, unforeseen financial circumstances, this offseason is going to suck. Yeah. I don't I don't see that as a problem at all. So, that's my that's my take on these on on this. I feel I'm feeling good, you know, never stressed. The labor war is already here, man. We're already at the next it's, battle. I know. We we talked so much about how uh after the 2021 season when the CBA is up, it's we're gonna have a war, but this this is it. I tweeted a, th- a thread about this, but owners are pretty good at this, man. Like they've had a lot of practice and they have a lot of advice from lawyers and PR people, but they're they're pretty they're pretty good at this. And by this, <laughs> I mean like weaponizing and capitalizing on the pandemic and the lost revenue to make it seem like 
they don't have any money to pick up the $10 million option for Brad Hand. Like, owners have made bank for the last two decades. They have cashed in. They have kept it all for themselves. They've completely privatized all of the additional revenue streams and kept it for themselves to great personal financial gain. All of these guys are worth more than they were when they bought their team, with the exception of basically no one. I mean, Fred McCourt, who went bankrupt while owning the Dodgers, but he doesn't own the Dodgers anymore, as we learned at the beginning of this this podcast here. Um, And the franchise values are all through the roof. So, like, everything that has worked out for them in the last two decades has been hoarded by them. And now in the one year where we have a a one-off, very unforeseen circumstance, they cry poor because they know that like much of America will sympathize with that tone, will harmonize with that tone in the case of many bootlicker fans, and they'll get away with it. And we're already seeing that happening with them not picking up these options. And then a lot of these free agents, I'm sure, will go sign for less money than their option would have been. Yeah, I mean, owners will, like you said, they're smart. They're going to seize on this moment, right? Like, owners are investors. They are literally always just looking to turn a buck. That's what they are. They're looking to make money out of this shit. So if they have a chance to cut out, especially when every other team is looking to do the same, like, this is their chance to be like, no, we're not colluding. We just all happened to cut payroll at the exact same time because of the global pandemic. We definitely weren't already trying to do this. Yeah. Like, this is the the most convenient excuse for them. It's you such know? a like, Hail Mary, dude. It's like, they've been colluding for the last five years to suppress player wage, and then they get this. It's bullshit. It's like gift-wrapped for them. They're probably through the moon about the pandemic, and <laughs> that is so slimy, but it's, it's so true. It's so bleak, yeah. Because they know that like this year's loss will set them up for 25 years of massive gain if it right. leads straight into a favorable labor negotiation for them, which, which you know, is- you and I hope that it doesn't. And it's not necessarily written in stone that it will, but it's a definite possibility if baseball history has taught us anything about the way that owners leverage players in these types of work stoppages. And they've built up a lot of leverage in the sense that they've kept younger players salaries down and they've kept minor leaguer salaries basically non-existent i also want to put loss losses in like massive scare quotes yeah because because we have no fucking clue how much money they're making or losing right a majority of baseball's books we just never get to see we essentially rely on whatever they tell us so they say yeah the league lost three billion dollars this year but that doesn't include any of the deals we have on the side. That doesn't include any of the TV deals that we have. That doesn't include the fact that we're basically just like real estate brokers at this point. This is like, this is solely just like, well, there were no fans, so we couldn't make any money off of tickets. And it's like, that's not where your money comes from anyways. But also okay. they lost $3 billion based on what they projected Right, exactly. Which was not vetted or fact-checked by anyone. That's just what they thought they were going to make. Yes. I I think that's a really good point because... So 
something that I've been thinking about with the way that the NBA has handled this situation is MLB has no transparency when it comes to this kind of stuff. Like Woj is tweeting out like the actual money that NBA, the NBA as a league made versus what they expected to make. He's tweeting out the expenses of what it cost them to do the bubble versus what they made back in TV rights by doing the bubble and how it was a financial decision, all of this stuff. And I'm like, where is this? Leak this shit to Passon. Leak this shit to Rosenthal. I don't care about fucking like reliever X is moving to the Brewers this year at the trade deadline. We'll find <laughs> that out at 301. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so there's no way to verify whether what they're saying is true or false. And because of that, they can just play three chess moves ahead of both us and the, the players union, you know, both the, the media that cares about this stuff as well as the players union, because they don't necessarily get to see all of the private parts of those books either. Yeah. Yeah. So like I caution, you know, us, you and I, I caution the listener and everyone to like, take what you hear from owners this off season with a massive grain of salt. And I'm, I'm not even saying that I think we should just immediately bash them, even though I know that's what we'll do. Not do. I we know should, that we should do that. That's our whole bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's our bit, yes. You know, we can, but you know, we're you, the you, only <laughs> we're the only podcast between two twenty something white guys that has the bit of being of, leftists, of, yeah, of, of ripping on rich people. <laughs> this is our thing. <laughs> the only socialist baseball podcast. Yeah, man, this is it's quite a uh, it's quite a hellstorm we're we're headed into. But you know what, Bobby, I'm happy to be doing it with you. And I'm happy to be doing it with you, the listener, joining us on this uh, on this on this midnight ride of ours. The last thing I'll say is that I'm happy to be doing it in a world where the Tampa Bay Rays, they of fifty million dollar payroll, are not reigning World Series champions. Alex, we did it. We talked about all the stuff we needed to talk about in like an hour too. I I blocked out three hours in my schedule for this, so I'm feeling pretty darn good right now. I'm feeling pretty darn good too. And if you, the listener, are feeling pretty darn good, you know what we would love? You know what we would really, really love, Alex? <laughs> is if you told someone to listen to the show. If you enjoyed this episode and you think they might also enjoy the episode, just pass it along. Send a little link. Just be like, hey, I like this show. Because the off season is our time to shine. The off season is the time when we will be getting great guests to come on and rip owners with us. We might be getting active or recently active Major League Baseball players. We'll be getting other members of the media to talk about how we can do our part and not letting the owners pull a fast one on us. And of course, we'll be doing more of episodes like this where you and I just kind of bounce back and forth and uh, yell about stuff. Uh, I just want to say before we get out of here, because it's worth mentioning, because he is the, the literal face of our podcast at the moment, although not for much longer, uh, that uh, Yasiel Puig is being sued for, uh, for sexual battery for something that happened at a Lakers game back in 2018. We pretty much have no other details beyond that. And it would be pretty darn pointless of us to speculate. But I think it's the opinion of um, myself, and if I can speak for you, Bobby, you too, um, that this shit sucks. And uh, until further notice, fuck that guy. So, um, you know, you can also look forward to a new logo. So that's uh, that's fun. We got something fun in the works for you. So look out for that as well. Okay, Alex. 
until next time, which we haven't decided when that is yet, but you're probably listening to this on a Friday. It'll either be the, the, the next Monday that happens or the Monday after that. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. everybody uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez tipping pitches this is the one that I love the most so we'll see you next week see ya